Ezekiel 46, let's turn there, please. It's a booming mic tonight. I guess I can be fiery tonight. Ezekiel 46. We're getting so close to the end of the book of Ezekiel. And I thought for sure we'd be through this chapter tonight, but you know the, you know the drill. <laughs> There's some other things to look at uh, as we get into the beginning of this particular chapter. Of course, where we've been is that God has been giving Ezekiel a vision now about the millennial temple the temple of Messiah in the thousand-year reign of Christ. And all of Jerusalem is changed. All of the city has changed except for the fact that it's still where God wants his city to be. And the temple now is, is uh, measured and uh, adorned and decorated and ready for worship. And... Ezekiel is giving this message to a people that are still in captivity in Babylon. But God wants him to give that message because he wants them to have hope. He wants them to have hope. He also wants them to know that he hasn't forgotten them. And he hasn't forsaken them. And we'll see that as we get into our study this evening. So in verses 1 through 8, let's read, Thus saith the Lord God, the gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east shall be shut the six working days. Now remember that there's a priesthood already serving in the temple. And again, I'm, I'm lo we're looking at the future, but uh, there's a priesthood that's going to be working in the temple. Uh, there are going to be sacrifices. We've talked about the sacrifices, the uh, observances, the offerings, and we're going to talk about that more even tonight. So it says, The gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east shall be shut the six working days. What is that telling us now about the millennial kingdom? The millennial kingdom is going to be uh, under, still under the time uh, continuum that we have on this earth. Be a 24-hour day, six days a week, the seventh day of the Sabbath, and that's the day of rest, but it's also the day of worship because it says that the, the gates or the, uh, the gate of the inner court, the doors of the inner court, will be shut for six days and they're working days. So what else is happening in the millennium? People are working. There's things that are happening in the millennium. And it says that the, the, the gate will be shut and then on the Sabbath it shall be opened and in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. So the new moon is now something new, the Sabbath something new as far as understanding why these things are being chosen to be uh, uh, celebrated uh, in the millennial kingdom. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 2. And the prince shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate without and shall stand by the post of the gate and the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go forth, but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. So here's the prince that we said is we, we don't know his identity uh, it, it isn't Jesus for a few reasons that we'll see tonight. We've already mentioned what those are. Uh, first of all, um, we, uh, we think that uh, David is also 
Boy, this, this mic is loud, man. I want to, I want to talk from back here because I'm, I'm scaring myself. Uh, okay. <laughs> if you can turn it down just a little bit, it'll, it'll help me think a little bit. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm, di I'm getting distracted by my own voice. Sorry about that. But anyway, the, the, uh, the prince shall enter by the way of the porch means that, of course, he's going to come in through that gate to go up to the inner court but not go into the inner court. And the priests are already preparing an offering for him. Jesus does not have to offer any offerings. He's already done his part on the earth. He, he's, you know, he was the offering. You know, so that's one reason why we don't believe it's, it's Jesus. And then it's not David either. Uh, and we'll talk about that more later. But uh, these are some of the things. And we're also going to talk a little bit about the fact that he has sons. In any event, uh, there's a... There's an offering prepared for him. Then he goes forth, but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. Now, what's different? Go back to the Old Testament. Go back to the Old Covenant. And they did sacrifices morning and evening. Why not evening? Now, because there's no darkness anymore in the sense of what, what Christ has already accomplished to be ruling and reigning from his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. He is indeed the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, ruling from his throne. There's, there's no darkness, no need for sacrifices at night. The sacrifices are, are for the day so that the, the Jewish people, first of all, will recognize why Jesus died on their behalf. Of course, we've talked about that already. And then verse 3 says, Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbaths and in the new moons. So there will be Sabbath worship and there will be new moon worship. I'm going to talk a little bit more about new moons and, and the new moon worship next week. Uh, suffice it to say that uh, the new moon is, of course, once a month. And so once a month there is this one offering or uh, uh, service unto the Lord for that day. And then the burnt offering that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And of course, we've already talked about the fact that why there is a uh, uh, offerings and sacrifices still continuing on uh, in the in the temple uh, on the temple mount of, as the temple mount that uh, the new temple is going to be on. Why is it happening? Because it's mostly a memorial, a memorial to the things that Christ has done. The meat offering, by the way, the meat offering is really not meat like carne, it is meat like grain, meal or food. There's re the, the meat offering is one word in the, in the Hebrew, but it, it means uh, the offering that is considered. When you look at the ephah being the dry measure, that means it's a dry measure of some kind of grain. So the meat offering shall be an ephah for a ram and the meat offering for the lambs as he shall be able to give and a hin of oil uh, to an ephah. I'll, sp I'll speak about that in a moment. And in the day of the new moon it shall be a young bullock without blemish and six lambs and a ram. They shall be without blemish. And he shall prepare a meat offering, an ephah for a bullock and an ephah for a ram and for the lambs according as his hand shall attain unto and a hin of oil to an ephah. And when the prince shall enter, he shall go in by the way of the porch of that gate, and he shall go forth by the way, uh, the way thereof. So he goes in by the porch of that gate, 
The east, east gate goes out that same gate. We're not, uh, we're not talking about the outer gate. I'll, I'll again mention that in a moment. So once again, just to review, the prophet Ezekiel, having received this vision from God of the Messianic temple during the time of the coming millennial kingdom, which is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on the earth from Jerusalem, continued to direct the Lord's prophecy to the people who were in captivity in Babylon. Now, the need to declare to the exiles these things that would take place many thousands of years later was certainly to give the people that hope, that great hope, because the fact was that the Lord had promised that he would return them to the land of promise. It was a promise that God made that he would return them into the land of promise. And I'm talking about the 70 years that they were going to be in captivity in Babylon. At the end of 70 years, they would go back into, into the land. And even though they would eventually be scattered again from the land after their rejection of Messiah in 70 AD, the Lord would bring them back into the land as a nation once again in preparation for the consummation of the ages. So the Lord's bringing them back into the land wet. Well, what was, what was Ezekiel 37 about? The valley of dry bones that are resurrected that become a new nation of Israel, which we believe is the Israel that is there today. The Israel that is there has, has risen from the ashes of the Holocaust. It is now a nation that God has his hand upon and there's still yet things that God is going to deal with them about because it doesn't mean that today because they're in the land that their hearts are right before the Lord as a nation. It's not really there yet. There are those that are religious that, that do expect the Messiah to come, but they don't realize that the Messiah has already come. And then the others are still there, but, but there is more of a national pride. So God has got a lot of work to do, and, and of course he's going to accomplish that. We know that both in the Old and New Testament. We know that because Paul himself cried out in, in, in Romans 9 through 11 about the fact that he wants his nation, Israel, to be saved. And, and he eventually says, all Israel shall be saved. So with that in mind, then he's preparing the consummation of the ages. What does that mean? So before we press on into this new chapter, let me, let me say something about that term, the consummation of the ages. Simply, it refers to the last days. It refers to the end of the ages. Or as we see in the book of Hebrews, it's actually in the text. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Let's, let's go there and, uh, and let's see the, um, the context of that phrase, the consummation of the ages. In verse 23, it says, It was therefore necessary that the, pattern of, uh, the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. Now, the verse previous to this talks about the blood of Jesus Christ needing to be shed for the remission of sins, or that blood, actually, generally speaking, the blood has, blood has to be shed for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. So then it goes on into this, into this uh, uh, thought that has to do with things that need to be purified by the sprinkling of the blood. So it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens, the patterns of things, the patterns of what? The tabernacle, temple, you know, the things that God had, had created to be pictures of Christ on this earth. Uh, the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The better sacrifice, of course, is Jesus Christ. 
the better sacrifice is his blood. Because notice in verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, <clears throat> but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often. Notice what it says, that he should offer himself often. He doesn't have to offer himself constantly. This, this is one of the, this is one of the um, uh, misrepresentations of what is called the sacrifice of the mass in the Catholic Church, that, you know, uh, Jesus has to be uh, offered constantly. But this is a going against the word of God. I mean, think about it. It's very clear here, not yet that, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. One sacrifice, one time, that's it. That's what the scripture says. By whom? By the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And then here's verse 26 where that phrase is. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world. That phrase, the end of the world, literally is the consummation of the ages. In fact, there's only one translation that I have found that uses that, and I believe that's the New American Standard Bible. But it says, the consummation of the ages, the end of the world, the end of the ages, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And how many times? One time. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, there, there's the kind of the emphasis on that, once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Doesn't have to be offered again. Doesn't need a substitute and stand in his place to offer himself up once again. He's done it once for all. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So, the Greek word for end, the word end, which I've said is uh, the word consummation, is the word suntileia in the Greek, and it means the entire completion, uh, i.e., that is, the consummation, the end of a dispensation, the end, the complete and total and entire end of the age and of the world. And I bring this up because there are some people who would equate the consummation of the ages with the end of the Mosaic law. And hence the complete rejection of Israel by God for their disobedience and rejection, uh, rebellion and subsequently what some have believed should be the annihilation of the Jewish race. The fact of the matter is we know that there have been times throughout history that people have sought the annihilation of the Jewish people as near, as close to us as, as the 30s and the 40s of, of, of the 20th century. We know that, don't we, history, historically? But it didn't happen. And yet there are people today that would probably want that still to happen. To them, the consummation of the ages would be the entire destruction of the Jewish race. Well, it isn't about the end of the Mosaic law because you remember the law, which is the Torah. The Torah is truth. 
Very clearly, the Torah is truth, and truth is eternal. So it's not a matter of the destruction of the, of the Mosaic Law. And even Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. The law cannot be destroyed because it's truth. It'll be eternal. So may I simply point out to you what the Word of God says, because we want to get beyond this thought that Israel has been rejected by God, completely and totally. Israel has not been. And the reason why we know that is because of what it says in the Word of God in Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. It says in verse 35, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day. Now this is what's called an ordinance. It's a fixed order, something that God has fixed to be happening all the time. Uh, even if it's a cloudy day, when the sun goes up, we know it's day, don't we? The sun has come up. So, thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night. A fixed order, that's what it means. It is a fixed order. Which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances, the sun rising, the moon, stars, if those ordinances and what they do, light by day, light by night, if those ordinances hook in the, in the, uh, in the Greek means a fixed order, if those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. If those things stop doing what they were fixed and ordered to do, then Israel, the seed of Israel would cease. What is God saying? They're not going to cease. Those ordinances are fixed. What else can we say is, is fixed? That Israel is going to continue to be a nation and, and the seed of Israel will continue to be a nation before God forever. Notice, forever. Now, in, in, in modern English, we use the word forever as one word. And I, I just like in the King James that it just divides it and says forever. <laughs> For a long time that never ends. Forever. And thus saith the Lord. Listen to what he says here. If heaven above can be measured... And the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. First of all, can, earth, can, can the heavens be measured? We have scientists that have developed such strong, strong telescopes into the... They go on and on. And what do they keep finding? They keep finding more and more things. They can't measure it because they keep finding another universe beyond and another area beyond beyond what they can see. So there has, there's no end to it. Why? Because you can't measure it. God, God, God is... Uh, I like the fact that he did that. Yeah. Said, you want to measure it? Here, here's another universe. See if you can see this one. See if you can see that one. We can't even measure the... We can't even measure the, the Milky Way and the galaxy is... In, in, a, in a good way. We try. We, we've got all kinds of numbers. Scientists who are supposed to work off of empirical evidence never really work off of empirical evidence when they have to keep guessing at all kinds of things. That's not empirical evidence. That's guessing. So I guess a lot of science today is just a bunch of guessing. 
But with God, he says, if you can't measure it, then guess what? I'm not getting rid of Israel. And how about the foundations of the earth searched out from beneath? There's a lot of theories about what's underneath the earth. Don't you remember when you were a kid and you were growing up and you said, you know, I'm going to dig a hole to China. Well, maybe, maybe you didn't, but I did. I didn't get very far. In El Paso, what we have is something called caliche, and it just, you know, <clears throat> that was about as far as I could go. The fact of the matter is, even though they have dug deep holes, uh, they haven't seen what the foundation is. And there's another theory out there. I, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a hollow earth, hollow earth theory that they believe is a biblical theory. Interesting, isn't it? I, I just find it interesting that, uh, you know, there's all kinds of things to, to investigate. But while we're investigating, guess what? Israel's still around. <laughs> and that's the whole point. They're not going to go away. I want you to consider this, uh, this personal example in the life of, of one of Israel's kings. Let me read it to you. It's 2 Kings chapter 8. Now, now you guys are probably wondering, I thought we were going to study Ezekiel. We are. We're, we're getting there. I've got reasons for why I'm doing this. 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 60 through 19. 2 Kings 8, 16 through 19. It says, And in the fifth year of Joram, or Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, Jehoshaphat being the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. So Jehoram, Joram, same. Thirty and two years old was he when he began to reign. And he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Now, what is that, what is that telling you? This king who was the king in Judah walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Do you know that not one king in Israel was a good king? They were all evil. So what does that tell you? It tells you that he was walking in the evil of the, of the kings of Israel. So he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as did the house of Ahab. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. He had married the daughter of Ahab. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. But notice verse 19. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah for David, his servant's sake as he promised him to give him always a light and to his children. And that came about, he would not destroy Judah. That came about because of God's covenant with David. It came about because of God's covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 17. And listen to this, in verse 12 it says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. This is the Lord speaking, you know, through the prophet uh, to, to David I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels and I will establish his kingdom we know that to be of course Solomon because as we read on it says he shall build a house for my name he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever I will be his father and he shall be my son if he commit iniquity I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men but my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before thee and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established whose house and kingdom? David's and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever 
before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. When he says it twice, he's saying, I'm serious about this. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Now, why is all of this important as we begin our study here in chapter 46 of Ezekiel? Well, primarily it is because of something that needs to be recognized in a greater sense than has already been stated. And that is that everything that is being observed by Ezekiel, everything that is being observed by the exiles as Ezekiel is speaking out the prophecy that he's getting from the Lord, everything that is being observed by us as we study this passage of Scripture is that the observances and the offerings and the sacrifices and the special observances of new moons and Sabbaths are showing the very distinctive Jewish character of the entire vision given to the prophet. In other words, it is not a picture of Christianity. Bear with me. It is not a picture of Christianity, as it were, except, except in the sense that the old temple and the temple of the vision typify to a certain degree the Lord's present temple, which is composed of all those who have been built by the Spirit into the house of God. That's what they exemplify for us. We've talked about this before, so this is a point of review. That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God. Ephesians 2, 19-22, Paul says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple. So individually and corporately together we are the temple of of, of God. We are the house of God, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Now that's, now that's a very significant thing for us as believers in Jesus Christ to remember and to know. And if that is the case, how spiritual of an issue is that in your own personal life? How do you deal with that particular kind of issue if we are a part of the whole house of God on the earth today? There is no temple today in Israel. There is a temple mount, but we're not even sure that that's exactly the place where God wants his temple to be. It's possible, but it may not be possible. But we know one thing, that the Orthodox Jewish people today are crying out for their Messiah to come, but they need to have the temple ready because they want a temple for Messiah when he comes. So we know that because we know how important the temple is at the beginning of the tribulation period. Or sometime at the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, there has to be either a temple already constructed or one that's going to be constructed. One that's already planned or one that's already being built at that very time. So until then, 
And here's another, here's another point to consider. Until then, we are the house of God as the church, as the body of Christ. And when Christ comes for his church, there'll be a temple. We'll get into that another time. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Know you not? Now, that ye is to speaking to the whole community in, in, in Corinth that are believers. Not, not to the individual, but to the, the church. Know ye not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. The Spirit of God does dwell in each and every one of us individually, but it also dwells in the church, the body of Christ, the house of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And this combines both the personal and individual aspect of having Christ in us and having the Spirit of God in us, as well as being a part of the whole body of Christ that contains the Holy Spirit. And once again, notice the, the, the terminology, the temple of the Holy Ghost. Bought with a price. 1 Peter 2 verse 5, You also as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. To offer up spiritual sacrifices. The book of Hebrews, it tells us in chapter 13, I believe it's in verse 15, that we are to offer the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving from our lips unto the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're told that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto God, holy and acceptable. We are the house of God. And therefore, we need to live like we're the house of God. You all understand that, right? We need to live like we're the house of God. And what we learn now in chapter 46, as we get there now, is that worship in Messiah's temple will be done in a proper and orderly way. Which tells me that everything we've talked about being the house of God, being the temple of the Holy Spirit, being the temple that's on the earth today, because we are the ones that contain the Spirit of God, is that we have to also live and do what we do in a proper and orderly way. The Bible tells us very clearly that God is not the author of confusion. So we need to seek what the truth is from God's word and then we need to consider that that's how we are to live our lives as believers. All things are done in an orderly and properly way when God does them. I don't know if you've noticed that from Genesis to Revelation, but that's the truth. That everything that God does, he does in an orderly and proper way. God doesn't do anything wrong, in other words. And when he does what he does, he always does it in a proper way. And there's order, the fixed order of the ordinances. You know, we, we might be able to measure a little bit off here and there because, you know, we have different calendars that we go by and, and things have to be adjusted because this is an imperfect uh, world and an imperfect universe. But, but one thing is for sure, God knows where everything is. And he's ordered it and they continue to, the sun still rises in the morning. 1 Corinthians 14, 40 says, let all things be done decently and in order. That's because God does everything in decent, 
does things decently and in order. So the procedure for worship on the Sabbath and on the day of the new moon is dealt first in our text. First worship during the millennium will be established on the Sabbath primarily because the call and purposes of God for his people Israel will be fulfilled in the Messiah's kingdom. Everything will be fulfilled for Israel in the Messiah's kingdom. And so the relationship, listen, the relationship with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which the Lord so desired, will be firmly and uh, finally established when Messiah returns to earth and to the throne of David. All of that relationship that he wanted with his people. And we know that because the scripture is very clear that when Messiah comes, the people that will see him will know that it's him. They'll see him who was pierced. Those are words not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Well, they're in the New too, but, but the Old Testament has it. The book of Zechariah. They'll see him who was pierced. And they'll weep. There's not going to be what, what some people uh, uh, describe today as, a, uh, as a, uh, 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 an apostate Israel you know, before God. They're going to know Jesus as their Messiah and they're going to worship him. That's why there's going to be all kinds of sacrifices. Not because they have to sacrifice to be saved, but they sacrifice to know and to keep it in their minds and in their hearts for a thousand years that Jesus truly did die for their sins as the Lamb of God, as the only true atoning sacrifice. It will be during this time that all the covenants given by God to Israel will be completely fulfilled in operating. They will be operating during the millennium. God keeps his covenant. You know, when we hear that, you know, when we read that in the Old Testament, we say, well, God, okay, God keeps his covenant. Hey, he's going to keep his covenant even in the millennium. See, we need to start thinking a little bit more in terms of eternal ways and eternal thoughts rather than just what kind of fits our own little, you know, day by day morning, you know, sunrise in the morning, sun goes down at night, you know, we get up in the morning once again. No, man, God is going to keep his covenant for eternity. The Jewish people are going to trust Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, their Messiah, as their true Messiah. Seeking forgiveness of sins through the blood of his cross. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, not through the blood of the animals, even though they're going to have them. They're going to understand now why he did what he did. And they will collectively live righteously and godly by keeping the commandments of God's holy word for a thousand years in the millennium. They will also fulfill their former covenants given to them by God. Let me ask you a question. Well, this, this doesn't, you're not going to have an answer to it, but how many times did Israel not keep the covenant with God? I can't answer that. There's too, too, too many. Every day they messed up their covenant with God. God always kept his side. They didn't keep theirs. Some tried. There was always a remnant that did. But there will be a day 
when they will keep their covenant and God will keep his with them. Now what you call that? Fellowship. Israel will finally have fellowship with their Messiah. They will present their sacrificial offerings in praise for what Christ has done for them. And through these offerings and their obedience to God's commands and their worship on the Shabbat, the Sabbath, as well as on, the, the, uh, on other occasions, they will finally be God's people. And those words where God says, I, and you will be my God, or you will be my people and I will be your God, those things, those words will be a reality. You will be my people. I will be your God. You know, we have nothing to boast in, folks, as believers in Jesus Christ today, because the fact of the matter is, he is our God, and we are his people now. That's all because we believed that Jesus died for our sins. That's all because we have believed that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. It's all because we have believed it and we've confessed it with our mouth. And we've believed it and continue to believe it in our hearts. And that in itself brings us to that place where we are his children of light today. The encouragement that Paul and the apostles give is keep being that light. Keep being the light of the glory of God in Christ. Because you are his people. You are his people. Let's go back to verses 1 through 5, Ezekiel 46. Very quickly, because I kind of already talked about these things. Thus saith the Lord God, the gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. And the prince shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate without, and shall stand, which means outside, and shall stand by the post of the gate, and the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. And he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go forth, but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbath and in the new moons. And the burnt offering that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish, and a ram without blemish, and the meat offering shall be an ephah for a ram, and the meat offering for the lambs, as he shall be able to give, and a hen of oil to an ephah. So as we said, the east gate of the inner court, not the east gate of the outer court, which is shut during the six working days, will be open on the Sabbath. The prince will enter thus and, and worship at the threshold of the gate from where he can see the sacrifices of the altar. So he's at the threshold of the gate, looking in, seeing what's going on inside. Uh, at the outside entrance of the gate, the scripture tells us the people will worship and they'll be peering through as well to see what's going on. But on the Sabbath day, on the Sabbath day the prince will bring forth a burnt offering of six unblemished male lambs and a ram. In addition he will make a grain offering, as I said that's called the meat offering, but it's grain of a half bushel of flour to go with the ram and as much grain as he pleases to go with the lambs. If you read verses 4 and 5, there is an, a voluntary, uh, uh, it's that voluntary attitude that says, give as much as you want to give. You can give as much or 
all that you want to give. And then he'll also give one gallon, which is that hen is a, about a gallon of olive oil for each half bushel of grain. And on the day of the new moon service, the prince will bring a young bull, a ram and six lambs. He's to give a grain offering of a half bushel of flour for each bull and each ram and as much grain as he wishes for the lamb. As much as he wishes. I, I, I want to stop there just for a second because I, it reminds me of, of when the people were gathering together uh, all of the jewelry, the gold, and, 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 and all the precious uh, materials that were gathered together for the building of all of the, uh, the furnishings of the uh, tabernacle uh, and, uh, and all that. Uh, there was a point where they had to say, okay, stop giving. We've got, we've got more than we need. And, and it, it comes to mind, you know, uh, that attitude is uh, not in many people today that are in the church. You know, as God has blessed you, you, you know, take care of things, and that's okay, because the Lord would have us to take care of our homes and families and all. But uh, this, this, this particular offering is, is, is showing this voluntary desire, this desire to just give from the very heart to the things of God. And uh, so, you know, as, as that happens, I mean, I'm not, I'm not here, you know, campaigning or anything, but you know, the point is that we need to really check our hearts when God calls us uh, to that uh, aspect of giving because it is part of our stewardship. Uh, we really don't own anything. Everything, is, everything belongs to the Lord. We're just good managers, or at least we should be good managers. Uh, we are managers for sure, ho hopefully good ones. But uh, that, that's an important thing to understand when it says that they gave as much as they wanted to give. Once again, he, he gives a, a gallon of olive oil for each half bushel of flour. As it goes on to say in verses 6 to 10. And in the day of the new moon it shall be a young bullock without blemish and six lambs and a ram. They shall be without blemish. And he shall prepare a meat offering, an ephah for a bullock, an ephah for a ram, and for the lambs according as his hand shall attain unto, and a hint of oil to an ephah. And when the prince shall enter, he shall go in by the way of the porch of that gate, and he shall go forth by the way thereof. In other words, you go, how he goes in, he comes out. I want you to notice that. This is important. Where he goes in, he comes out. Where he goes in, he comes out. All right. I'm just trying to ingrain that in your mind because of what's coming up next. But when the people of the land shall come before the Lord in the solemn feasts. Now notice this. He that entereth in by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. And he that entereth in by way of the south gate, I think that's south, I don't know where south is, shall go forth by the way of the north gate. So the, the, the gates have to be wide enough because you're going to have people coming through this way and going out this way, and then another group coming up this way and going out that way. Which way did they go? That way. They're going from all sides. So there's, and, 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 and it's orderly, remember, so it's really nice and orderly, and they're coming in, doing their sacrifice, going right out. And the other's coming this way and going out there. And everybody say, hey, how you doing? How's the southerners over there, you know? And then the northerners, well, you're going to go to south now. We're going up to the north, you know, whatever. But that's how they're going in and out. Uh, so he sh notice, he shall not return by the way of the gate whereby he came in. 
The prince was the only one. He goes in by the sea, he's gay, comes out the same way. But these people are going this way and that way, okay? And the prince in the midst of them, when they go in, shall go in. So when the people go in, he, the prince goes in. And when they go forth, shall go forth. So there are some people who consider now, uh, verse 9, a, a way to explain that when Jesus Christ returns to the earth, the worship services within the temple will be naturally just flooded with people and so traffic control will be necessary to handle the enormous influx of crowds. That's what they think. And while the prince will enter and exit through the portico of the east gate, the people entering from the south must exit north. The people entering from the north are to exit south. The prince will enter and leave with the people participating in worship with them. That's pretty cool. But there's something else that I'd like for you to consider in this scenario. Going in from the north to south, going in from the south to the north. Consider that the Lord is showing us something. The Lord is showing us that we should never leave a worship service in his presence the same way that we came in. Think about that for a moment. We should never leave a worship service in his presence the same way we came in. In our walk, in our witness, in our worship and praise, in the way we see things in this world, it should be all different because we've been in the presence of the God who created the heavens and the earth. The Lord should have spoken to our hearts and to our minds. I, I pray he's doing that even now, awakening us, challenging us. It is a sad thing to enter into a church, as many do in churches around the world and around the country, as if they're just coming to do their time. Fulfilling their obligation and leaving church as the way they came in, unchanged. It's not about the person standing up here. It's not about the charisma of a preacher or a pastor. It's about the heart of a worshiper who really cares to be where God wants him to be, doing what God wants them to do. It should never be that we just come to do our time. <laughs> what is that? I don't even understand that. I want to do your time. And not a minute over. <laughs> well, I mentioned this earlier, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That phrase has to do with worship. And be not conformed to this world. That's an interesting thing. Be not conformed to this world because you know the world wants to form you. The devil wants to take the world and form you 
into an image that is outside of what God wants you to be. Conform. Form you with the world. Instead, he wants us to be transformed. Be transformed, changed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Lord desires to transform us and our lives if we'll only let him. That's what it comes down to. If we'll let him transform us. We should never leave his presence the same way we came in. I, and I'd be really careful with the criticism that says, well, this church is dead because, you know, these people don't have the spirit, so the spirit is not here. And you're saying that if you're in the building, then you don't either. Do you understand what I'm saying? And yet we who are um, earthen vessels, we who every day wake up May I say, with more aches and pains every day than we did the day before. But we wake up and, and, you know, we want to serve God. But from time to time, we struggle and wrestle. Paul said we would. Spirit wrestles against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit every day, folks. Every day. But this doesn't make some of us better than others. I'm not better than you just because I stand up here. I require your prayers as much as you require mine. And by the way, you have them. We should never leave his presence the same way we came in. One thing for sure, if we enter into this place in humility, we will leave lifted. James 4, verses 5 through 10 says, Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy, but he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned unto mourning. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And that's really the attitude of every heart that comes before God. When we humble ourselves, he's able to work with us. We become workable, like clay that's softened by the crushing and the powder that we become after being made thinking that we, in our, in our solid state, is, you know, we're, we're perfect, we're not. And God crushes us and breaks us, and then He mold, you know, He pounds it. But then we puts water in the in the powder and dust, and and He reshapes us again. 
When we humble ourselves, he works with us. And so he wants to lift us up. That's his desire. That's his job, as it were, to lift us up. In closing for tonight, let's look at verse 11 of our text. Ezekiel 46, verse 11, it says, And in the feast and in the solemnities, the meat offering shall be a, an ephah to a bullock and an ephah to a ram, and to the lambs as he is able to give a hin of oil to an ephah. So the Lord gave the procedure for worship during the feasts or festivals. A grain offering amounting to a half bushel of flowers to be given with each bull and ram. But um, people can give as much as they wish with each lamb they offer. However, they must give a gallon of oil, olive oil for each half bushel of grain offering. So that's, that's pretty clear. So in any organization, the, the members need to handle their business in an orderly way to be effective. And this is as true of the church as it is of any other organization. The most highly organized and orderly person in the universe, in the universe is the Lord himself. And therefore, we must handle the matters of the church, which includes worship, or which include worship, including uh, worship exactly as God himself prescribes. Worship as God prescribes. Is there a little freedom there in, 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 in the church? Of course there is. A lot of freedom, you know, as a matter of fact. The Bible talks about liberty. We have the liberty in Christ. And the liberty that comes from our, our, our dependency upon the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The liberty to go forth in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a lot of liberty we have as believers in Jesus Christ. But we are still to be letting God be, you know, the, the overall CEO, the manager, the one above everyone and everything. Psalm 89, verse 7 says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. Now, a lot of people in the church will take the word fear and, 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 and use it in, in, in some way to, to kind of uh, justify sometimes uh, legalism. But we have to understand what it means to be feared in, in, in the scriptural sense. In the scriptural sense, it means to give God his reverence, to give God his respect that he is worthy of because he is above all of his creation. That's the kind of biblical fear that we need to understand about all the time with God. That's when we can sometimes get out of the loop when it comes to liberty because the, the, the caveat is don't let liberty cause you to stumble. Don't let liberty cause you to stumble others. It's something that can happen. So God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. And, and may I say that as long as God is omnipresent, omniscient, He is and, and, and omnipotent because he's all-powerful. As long as he's those three things, we're about him. We're about him in this place. It isn't like he's just here and then when we come in, we're in his presence. 
Wherever we go, we're in his presence. We understand what I'm saying. All the more when we gather to worship him and praise him and learn of him and grow in his, in his love and grace and, and read and study his word, we're even more in his presence in a sense. I mean, from our standpoint, not, not his, he's always present. But he's to be feared in the proper biblical sense. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 1 says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. Keep your foot. Yeah, please, don't leave your feet here. Keep your foot means to, to, to watch where you are. Watch where you step, in a sense, in the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. I hate to say it, but in the time of Jesus, Jesus was in the midst of a lot of fools who thought that by their much giving, they were going to be blessed. But their hearts were far from God. You see what a sacrifice of a fool is. They didn't consider that they did evil. It comes back down to that issue of, you know, my good outweigh my bad, which has nothing to do with salvation. Keep your foot when thou goest to the house of God. 1 Corinthians seven seventeen. But as God has distributed every man, as the Lord has called every one, so let him walk. Who's in control? Who distributes? Who has called? God has. And Paul says very clearly, but as God has distributed every man, as the Lord has called every one, so let him walk. And so I ordain I in all the churches. And then every one of us that is a believer in Jesus Christ should take seriously the things that God is saying about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. But in verses 4 through 8, this is what it says. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. It's all different kinds of gifts. I'm really, I'm really thankful that there are a lot of gifts operating on a Wednesday night or a Saturday night or a Sunday morning. All kinds of gifts operating in the church by people who have just humbled themselves to become a servant of the Lord, to take care of kids or to take care of kids in the, in the high school or the babies or the nursery. And then, of course, cafe and... and and, and uh, kitchen and, and ushers and security. I mean, it was on and on and on and on and on. Sound people, worship people. You know, I mean, it's, it's all kinds of gifts going on. If we were just to kind of stop and examine all of that's going on, we're saying, man, there's a lot of gifts happening here. See, what clouds that sometimes is that we get upset because we don't like one thing or another and then we get mad at somebody. And then, well, hey, listen, if they're, if they're exercising the gifts that God has given them, let them exercise the gifts that they're giving that they're given. It's all in perspective, folks. It's all in how we perceive what, you know, who's doing what. Let him, man. I mean, God is the one that's in control. Not you, not me. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. We have one Lord. We all worship, and we all different different gifts. But hey, it makes for a great church. 
And I'm not speaking of this particular body. I'm just talking about the body of Christ. When everybody's doing what God has called them to do. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God which worketh all in all. It's the same God. We don't worship different gods here. One God. That is working. He is the one who administers. Through you, if you open yourself to being used of the Holy Spirit. But the manifestation of the Spirit, notice this. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. So that's how you are able to take the gift God gives you and use it for his glory. And by the way, use it for his glory, not your own. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge. It goes on and on and on. But that's how it is. God gives those gifts and uses them. And then you realize the manifestation is given to you to exercise the gift he gives. But it still comes down to God being in control. It still comes down to him exercising proper and orderly events. For you, for me, individually, corporately, it's still the Lord. It's not us. So we don't want to get in God's way when he's doing stuff through others. And we don't want to get in God's way when uh, he's wanting to do something through us individually. We want to say simple thing. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Very important to keep something else out of your, out of your vocabulary with God. No, God. No, Lord. Peter taught us that lesson. Peter said that a couple of times, and what was Jesus' response? Get thee behind me, Satan. So don't, you know, no Lord doesn't, you know, hey. We don't want to go there, okay? So let's just say yes, Lord, when God calls.